0: Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today's Monday... December the 5th, 2022, this is episode 3210 of the Survival Podcast, and we're almost back to everything being normal again. Boy, have I had a riot in the last month of just stuff going haywire crazy and losses and stuff like that. I lost two computers. Uh, of course, I've back updated on all. It's not the point. It's very disruptive. Uh, when you lose your two primary work machines a couple weeks apart from each other. Um, I have not been able to to properly edit podcasts for like the past two weeks due to that. Uh, got that all rectified today. So you heard music coming into this. So we're back, right? Almost. Almost. Some of you might have missed it last week. I have been banned for a week from YouTube again for committing the atrocious sin of speaking freely. And you might wonder, well, Jack, yeah, I mean... What did you what did you say recently that got you kicked off YouTube again? Nothing. Nothing. No, 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 no. Uh I got banned for a video that I did in the early summer of 2021. A Miyagi mornings video where I talk about the importance of free speech and it was it was branded as being dangerous misinformation. Misinformation. Yeah. Have you ever noticed, guys? I'm just saying, have you ever noticed how many YouTube channels there are saying that the Earth is flat? And other nonsensical bullshit? Do you think they really care about misinformation? Do you really? How many YouTube channels can you go out and find right now who their their entire premise of existence is quote-unquote misinformation? Absolutely fictitious bullshit they conjure up out of nothing. And those are fine. No, what, what YouTube hates is when you use free speech to make a case against the thing that they like, and you're right. That's when you get banned. And uh, I'm not even sure on that video exactly what I got banned for, but it was 18 months old. 18 months old, I don't think anybody's watched it recently. There's somebody narked me out or some AI feature found a phrase that they objected to. And after their thorough review, I am still banned for this full week. So what does that mean for the podcast? It means you will not hear. And we are live uh, from me much. My interviews this week I will conduct with StreamYard. I'll go ahead and stream those to Odyssey and, and, and wherever else they go. And I'll upload those videos to the YouTube uh, a channel, but I won't bother videoing the standalone shows this week because that just won't make sense uh, under the circumstance of YouTube being bad. Because you guys just don't, well, you don't watch my videos on other platforms. Everybody says they want us to use the other platforms. We put it on Rumble, we put it on Odyssey, we, like three people show up for a live stream. You know, so I use YouTube still because it works. Um. God, they're under my nerves. So what are we going to talk about today? We're just rambling Jack today. We are returning to our four pillars of homesteading uh, series. And today we're going to talk about the second pillar, backyard livestock. I want to say something about this, though, as I get into this with you today. When I say first, second, third, fourth, you should not take it that any of them are more important than any of the other ones. Now, I do think, you know, if you look at pillars, you kind of you gotta have four to have a building. I guess you could leave one out and you could have a stool. You could have three. But they're all of equal importance. If I build a, a, a four-pillared uh, structure, you know, four main posts, corner posts, if I cut one of the posts out, a whole building comes down. So you shouldn't take it like, well, Jack said the first pillar is gardening, so I have to do that before everything else. Maybe. Maybe not. I did kind of pick gardening first because I do feel like it is the the gateway drug. But the other pillars are small livestock, which we'll hit today, perennials, perennial horticulture on your property, and hunter-gatherer local trade knowledge. That's the fourth one. And the reason I call these the four pillars, when I look back at my grandparents' generation and where I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, especially in my high school years, and I look around at the remnant of the people that were still living, this is the 1980s, this is the mid-80s, right? A lot of those people were people that still remembered what it was like living through the Great Depression and the war years. And when I look at how they lived, and a lot of them either were first-generation, meaning that they came to the United States from places, specifically the Ukraine and Romania and Hungary, um, And others around that area were also, like, Lithuanian, Georginian, etc. It was very much a Slovakian uh, area. It was, like, all the Slovakian groups and and Irish, right? And when I look at those folks, either they they, they remembered the old country or they grew up with parents that did. My grandparents both spoke Ukrainian fluently, for instance, right? So they grew up in a uh, household. My great-grandfather never really learned that much English to kind of drive it home. When I looked at how those people lived and what they did and how they got by on very little money, and they were always tight-fisted with money too, man. They were always worried that it would come. The, the, the pressure would come back. I think it's very hard for us to understand how much of an imprint into the lives of people who lived through the Great Depression, it really was. This is what they did. I can think of you know, a couple dozen properties, and all of them had all four of these things going on. Of course, one is off the property with the hunter-gatherer trade, etc., but they all had all of it. And the ones that didn't, they were getting older, And so maybe they stopped keeping animals, for instance. That would be generally the first thing people would do is stop keeping animals because they required that active daily integration, right? Uh, And then maybe eventually they'd get too old to really garden anymore, and they would still have perennials and that hunter-gatherer local trade thing going on, which would be things like, you know, uh, a young kid like me bringing them vegetables. And so as people got older, they they tended to retract. So even the place I can think of, like the catchmers or whatever, where they had a little garden but not a big one anymore, and they didn't have any birds anymore, but I know they did it one time. And so that's why I call this the Four Pillars, because this is what people who really needed it used. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is knifekits.com. Knifekits is a sponsor that's been with us almost since we've had our first sponsors. I think they were like the third or fourth sponsor to sponsor the show. So we're talking 2009, is when they came on board as a sponsor. It's 2022, folks, and they're still here. Great company. Never have any complaints about them. Discount for a member support brigade. It's not a huge discount, but they're in a small margin business to begin with. Uh, So they support the MSB as well. And it's just a cool thing to be able to make a knife from pieces, parts, and components. Develop a new skill set. Develop actually multiple new skill sets when you learn how to make a knife. You can develop a hobby. You can develop family heirlooms. Great project to do with kids. Check them out today at KnifeKits.com. Next up today, Bulk Ammo. The other precious metal, yes, copper jacketed lead. That's definitely something we want to make sure we have a good stockpile of because a gun without ammo is an expensive club. That's what it is. It's not, you can't use it as a gun without ammo. It can get you shot because somebody else doesn't know you don't have ammo, but it can't do what a gun is designed to do. It can't, it, you can't really train properly without running ammo through your gun, at least at some point. You can't put meat on the table, and you can't defend yourself, your family, and your property. You can't do any of those things without ammo, and the ammo always dries up before the guns whenever there's talk of gun grabbing and stuff. So stock up right now, ammo's in stock, fair price, lighting fast shipping, and discount for MSB members as well. With that, let's kind of dive on into this. And again, I want to kind of just reiterate these four pillars. Again, I'm not really saying that because the second one is the second one that it's more important than the third one or the fourth one. But we're talking gardening, which we already did last Monday, small livestock, so that's chickens, it's quail, it's rabbits, it's ducks, it's fish. It's even, I'm going to even talk a little bit today about the upper end side, like smaller breeds of pig and sheep would be something that I would put at the upper end of this. It's also perennials. And perennials are like the easy button that people can use to actually start to stack food production into their backyards. And most people are doing something. They're watering a a Bradford pear that produces no pears or a pine tree or some bush, some boxwood or something like that. All we have to really do to get the perennial integration is to start replacing non-productive plants with productive plants. And and most of them are beautiful. I won't go deep into perennials today because it's not perennial day. But if you think about something like blueberry, blueberry is a beautiful bush. It, It turns fire red in fall. It has beautiful, you know, first they're kind of white, then they're pinkish red, then blueberries. They have white flowers. They have a small, form. they're a great plant. So by replacing a boxwood with a blueberry, we get production and we still have beauty. And then the last one being that hunter-gatherer and local trade knowledge. This was incredibly important to my grandparents' generation. There was so much local trade and no one even really thought of it that way. I've talked about the guy before. There was a gentleman named Buddy Shoemaker lived up the road from my grandfather. He made wine. And the way he made wine was you brought him the thing to make wine with, and he kept half the wine and gave you half of it back. And this dude had a huge stockpile of years and years. His, his wine cellar was crazy with, I mean, rhubarb wine, tomato wine, like parsley wine. Parsley wine? Yeah, dandelion wine. And for my grandfather, he made, he made wine from our grapes. And I took him a couple of big giant bags of grapes every year. And then I would go back up and get the old man's wine when it was done. And so that was a huge... That one person had a massive amount of commerce going on. Because all the... He didn't, his, the dude would have been dead if he would have drank all the wine he kept... It was used in multiple barter scenarios, and again, this guy, Buddy Shoemaker, he was the dude that if somebody had a problem, he made a couple phone calls, and that problem went away. He was just that guy, because everybody owed him something. He had all, he'd helped everybody out at some point in all those years. So when he called you and said, hey, can you help so-and-so, you were going to do it. Because you didn't want to be on the Buddy Shoemaker shit list, which I think was zero people. But it could have existed if you said no. You were going to help people. And it was that combination of things, I think, that made such a resilient community and group of communities in this place. So as far as why small-scale livestock, I think the first thing is protein and fat production. We could talk all we want about the fact that some vegetation has a reasonable amount of protein, or specifically grains and seeds and things like that. But there is no complete protein for the human nutritional profile in nature other than amaranth and quinoa, and you ain't going to live on that. But amaranth and quinoa, quinoa, as far as I know, have all of the... uh, Essential amino acids—the ones we can't produce for ourselves from a protein standpoint. So, you, and you can do combinations like well, if you take beans and rice and corn, yeah. But you know how much how much peripheral you have to eat to get the protein requirements that a human really has, and more than protein though is fat. Fat is a at a premium in nature is a nutritional thing. And personally, I believe that most vegetable-based or plant-based fats are bad for us, and we're not supposed to be eating them, and they're basically industrial waste products. And I don't necessarily that me- think it means that if you eat the thing the fat comes from, that in and of itself is bad. It's the volume necessary to extract fat. So if you looked at something like soybean oil. And how much soybean it takes to get a bottle of soybean oil. You'd realize you'd never eat that much soybean. You probably shouldn't either for other reasons. But you you get what I'm saying. Or you look at certain oils that are things that we wouldn't even consider food, but people cook with them, like canola oil. Like Nobody's going to sit down and eat a bowl of canola seed, or a.k.a. rapeseed. So we need to have that protein and fat production In our lives. And we have really only one main source of it in high quantity, high quality, and highly available in temperate climates like most of North America. And that is animals and animal products. Things that have a face. So we can get great protein and fat yields without killing an animal from something like an egg. But it's either going to come from an animal or it's going to be part of an animal. If we're going to get it, and I I just personally don't think we're going to get the quantity we need for optimum human health without it. So we need them for that. I also want to point out it can be done very inexpensively. People tend to spend a lot of money today with small backyard animal husbandry, they treat chickens like pets. So they get you know a little flock of three or four layers and then you get this old chicken that's been around for two or three seasons and it makes one egg a month and they keep that chicken around and they're feeding that chicken. And basically it's a non-productive pet at that point. And so, but if we will follow procedure and say when these birds get to a certain age I need to bring new birds in and those are the new production birds and as soon as they go into production these old birds need to go in a stew pot, things get to be a lot more... Cost effective. We're going to talk about a variety of, of different livestock today, but there are livestock that we can feed largely from the land one way or another. And if we do things right, even buying in feed does not have to be expensive. Infrastructure's incredibly important. I'll talk more about that today too, but it doesn't have to be expensive to keep four or five chickens or to keep a couple cages full of quail uh, so that you can breed quail and have meat and eggs or you know a few rabbit hutches can be built. We've got to be where we we, we kind of want the best of everything, and I don't think that's necessarily bad, but it, the bigger issue is it doesn't have to be like none of the people that I grew up around had a ton of money tied up in the infrastructure for their animals. Uh, Next, these animals allow us to process waste material into fertility. This is one of the reasons I think chickens have a strong case to be made for any homestead, because even a small group of chickens working all your waste product in a composting situation provide you so much back. In processing that material, additionally, chickens again—you have a chicken house, you got chicken deep litter, you, you compost that once a year—it's incredibly valuable. What they can do in turning waste material into fertility? Because we often think of waste material when we talk about composting, all is our food scraps out of the out of our garden and our kitchen, but we really need to think much more broadly with waste material. So if you're using wood chips, straw, whatever you're using as bedding. Eventually, that has to go, and that is waste material. And and without the chickens and their high nitrogen going with that carbon, you wouldn't get a real compost. You'd get more of a rot. And then it's also likely that there's an option for almost everyone. When I say small livestock, a lot of people are going to kind of start at the chicken and think, well, I can't do chicken, so I can't do small livestock. I'll give you some options today that will probably work anywhere and you may not normally think of them as livestock but livestock to me is any animal any animal that you keep to perform a function or provide a product you can consume or use is livestock so my first livestock option for people and you can do this even if you have like a small porch garden you know in a in a garden home or a, a condo or an apartment is worms and or black soldier fly And and most people wouldn't think of worms as a livestock. But it is an animal that you keep, and you keep it for a reason. It's going to convert those waste products. All that waste food is going to turn it into beautiful castings. It's incredibly valuable worm juice or tea that comes out the bottom of the worm farm. And that's an incredible fertility aid as well. So we're not going to be eating worms. I'm not eating the worms or the bugs, But they are an incredible resource, and I just kind of put them and black soldier flies together, because worms and black soldier flies kind of perform the same function. Though black soldier flies will compost things like meat wastes and all that you really don't want to use in a worm bin. So they they have a, a, a higher level of capability. They're also both great feed sources. They're feedstocks for other animals. So, if you have a worm bin, and you have black soldier fly bin, you have chicken food. You have duck food. right? You have quail food. And so, I'll start there. Moving next after that, up, uh, an item that is an incredible livestock option, that most people again don't think of, of livestock, is bees. Now, I, I want to say what I shouldn't have to say, but... <laughs> I'm not saying get all these different animals. In fact I'm specifically gonna tell you don't do that toward the end. And I'm also not saying that like you have to get any specific one of these animals. And things that are when I say things that are actually easy, it may be easy for some people and not others. And what I mean by that is do you like taking care of bees? I didn't. I didn't so I used to have bees. I did not enjoy taking care of them. I wasn't really afraid of them. You know, I, I always said I don't care if I get stung by a bee. Getting stung by 20,000 bees, not looking forward to that. But I learned how to use all the equipment. I learned how to suit upright and, and tape up, you know, like your around your wrists and stuff. I never got stung working my bees, not once. Um, I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy being in a bee suit in August in, in Texas. I didn't enjoy even just you know taking uh, jars out to feed them in, in the, in the Darth part of the year. I didn't like it. But if you do like it, they're pretty easy. They live in a box. Mostly they see to themselves. Your job is to make sure that they're healthy and happy and there's nothing wrong with each, each colony. To check on them. To manage splits and swarms. And to occasionally extract honey and wax. And to add on you know more living space as they need it it's pretty simple so what do we get from bees we get multiple animal products we get honey which i'm not as enamored with as i used to be trying to live a much more low carb lifestyle but it is a it is a product and it's an expensive product and even if you don't consume it it is a pro- like if you produce a thing and you get $100 for the thing, and you can buy $100 worth of meat, effectively you produce the meat. That's the way I look at it. So it's... And I, I know people who have made a great living with bees that, that barely extract any honey and barely sell any honey. All they sell is bees. One guy named Chris, is a long-term community member, he split hives every year. He had a way he did it, and he did not try to produce a lot of honey. He tried to produce a lot of bees. And he made... I don't remember exactly how much, but it was tens of thousands of dollars working two weeks a year real work. He made his boxes and all for his nukes, and he would just split, and he would sell two weekends, cash only, reserve in advance, come pick them up. And he sold out all his bees every year. So those bees, as a livestock, could have produced, the, and they probably did produce the money, to provide other food. So now I can go buy... If I sell that much, I can easily go buy a cow every year completely butchered from a local producer or something like that. So bees and worms are your, you know, not typically thought of that I would consider. Chickens. I think the chicken is the easiest backyard conventional livestock that you would think of when we we think of taking care of something. There's so many ways that we can do chickens, so we can always find the way that works for us. We can do a coop and run. We can do a coop and double run. We can do free range. We can do paddock shift. I mean, like, it's really up to you. But when we start talking about small holdings, properties that are like a quarter acre, half acre in that range, more suburban uh, living, you know, you're talking like three or four chickens. You're probably going to do coop and run in that environment. Even if you let them go free-range, like what what I have found most people do, and it seems to work really well where they can have chickens in the kind of more suburban property, the chickens go coop and run. Mom or dad comes home from work. There's a few hours of daylight left. You let the chickens out. Clip their wings. They don't go over the fence and bother Karen next door. And they don't really range that hard because they've been well-fed from their feeder uh, during the day. And so they just kind of go out and peck around and, 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 and tend not to cause a lot of trouble. People that have larger properties, you know, my birds, they live in a coop. They go in there at night. I open it up during the day. They come out and they go do their thing with the ducks and the geese. It, it, it doesn't get easier uh, than chickens. If you want to hatch your own eggs, they're the. E- in my experience, I've hatched duck eggs, goose eggs, muscovy duck eggs, quail eggs, chicken eggs. Is that it? That's it for me. And in my experience, there's nothing easier to hatch and get a high hatch rate with than chickens. They're just dead simple. Many chickens will raise their own. And once you have a chicken that will, you only need one because she'll raise everybody's. So you can make more chickens easily, whether you're incubating or using a broody hen. They processed waste. They have a high production capacity with eggs. I would say for most people in these smaller situations, you should be way more interested in chickens for the egg production than meat. You're going to have meat mainly from coals. Maybe you do a small run of birds that you you make your own hybrids or something and, and harvest every year. But at the scale we're talking, you're probably not going to be eating a ton of chicken from the backyard. But you have your stewing hens in your coal period. It's also very easy to predict how to keep your production high with chickens? If you're going to cull, it doesn't matter that you run lights after the the, the days get shorter and keep them in production because you're probably going to get after the second cycle you're gonna you're gonna cull anyway. So people say, well, that means that they you know they, they go into henopause they call it earlier. So what? I'm going to cull that bird anyway. We know that they're going to molt in the in the in the late summer of their first full year. We know that when they molt, they're going to molt for six weeks, and we know they're going to be in low production, and we know which cycle we're in, so know exactly when to either hatch some new babies or bring some new babies in so that those babies are going to be six months old. Seven months would be better right when the molt starts. And when that molt starts in that second or third season, whenever it is you want to do it, that's when you call, and now you have new production. So it's a very easy, very predictable cycle. Chicken is delicious. If it wasn't, we wouldn't eat so many things and say things taste just like chicken as well. Um, and there are a, quite a few varieties of chickens that make decent meat birds without having to go to the Cornish Crosses or what have you. Uh, the American Breast Chicken Group is, is doing really well. A lot of people are enjoying them. The thing I've heard from people in the American Breast Chicken Group is that the, the people who have gotten them now, they're so friendly they don't like you know putting them down when they have to. But... uh excellent, excellent option. And there's a reason it is like America's number one backyard livestock animal throughout the history of the country. Most people, if they didn't live right in the city, kept some chickens. Now, personally, I think if you want meat and eggs, that you're better off going with quail or having a small backyard chicken flock and having a quail. uh, A a a quail production system as well. Quail will... (sighs) You will never get the amount of eggs that a chicken will produce relative to the work that you put in from quail. They'll they'll give you more eggs. They're just much, much smaller. They're very, very small. Um, So if you primarily wanted a lot of eggs, I would say chickens would be the way to go. But there's nothing wrong with quail eggs. They're really easy to cook. They're really fast to cook, and they're incredibly productive. The big advantage to me with quail, though, is how easy they are to process for meat. So I can process a quail from this quail is in my hand and alive, wondering what's going on. It's about to be graduation day. Sorry, quail. To I have a, a breast in one hand and two leg quarters in the other hand. and It is ready to cook or put away or what have you in 30 to 45 seconds bird, and so if you want to produce meat the ease of converting animal into actual protein it is really huge you can pluck them save the skin it's delicious i agree but from a pure production standpoint being able to just pop the breast out pop the leg quarters out break the feet off grab the heart and the liver and 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 and, and go it's incredibly fast, they're incredibly productive, and it only takes them 21, it's either 18 or 21 days to hatch I think it's 18 days to hatch so they, they hatch in 18 days and the bigger deal is, they are harvest size for meat in about 6 weeks so 6 to 7 weeks is your optimum time to harvest them, it's before they start to get tough they're you know 90% of the size they're ever going to be so there's where you've you kind of hit the point where you've kind of hit the sweet spot in maximizing growth rate. They are, I, wouldn't, I don't consider them as easy to hatch as chickens, but they're not much harder. They're really easy to hatch. They're really easy to brood, and you can, with a single stack in a garage, produce more meat and eggs than you will ever be able to use. You will be giving it away if you're maximizing production capacity. Uh, Brad, who I had on uh, many years ago, Moon Valley Prepper. I can pro- try to find if I remember the, that episode today and link to it next to Quail in the thing. He was producing something like twenty thousand eggs and two thousand coal animals a year from a sing- from a single stack in a garage. That's pretty impressive. So Quail to me are kind of that sweet spot. Now the thing about Quail is you can do a little bit of providing food for them, but to me you're gonna ha- you are absolutely in a position where you're going to have to buy food for quail with chickens. You can feed chickens from restaurant waste streams. If you work hard enough to develop enough of that and you can have no, no out of pocket costs whatsoever. There's tons of, of, of things chicken can get gained from free ranging or from paddock shift and what have you. So even if you're buying feed, you can reduce that with quail, you know, they'll eat black soldier fly and things like that, but they're so high in protein and fat. You really need kind of a balance in their feed. Um, they're not going to live on grass or fodder trees like a rabbit will, so that, that is the one limit. The, the trade-off is the best food you can buy relative to the production that comes out of a coil system is incredibly cheap, and even a, in a, a fairly productive system, you know, 10 bags of feed can carry you through probably a year. So if you, if you just always have enough feed on hand for the next year, who cares? And, you know, there's a reason they say, you know, it's as cheap as chicken feed or bird feed, because it's cheap. Uh, Next up, rabbits. Rabbits, to me, are your maximum production of meat that you can do on a true small scale with the least dependence on a feed store. If you cultivate a really badass mixed lawn with different forage herbs and things like that, so clover... Mixes of perennial grasses, etc., plantain, etc. With a bag lawnmower, you can mostly feed rabbits from that. If you put in, like Nick Ferguson teaches, some hybrid willow, white mulberry, hybrid poplar, fodder trees, and not even that many, man, you really can feed rabbits and have almost no feed bill. I still recommend having pellets, I think it's a good backup. I think always having some there and available makes sure that your rabbits are always at optimum health. But you can really minimize that. The production that you get from rabbits is massive. One, do, one buck and, and three does will produce more meat than you would get out of a probably two meat goats a year. It tastes great. It's an incredibly delicious meat. I do have to pause here and talk about fat uh, because people always say stupid shit when it comes to rabbits. Uh, that would equally apply to quail and and somewhat less, but somewhat with chickens as well. And that's it. You can get rabbit starvation if you eat too much rabbit. Stop talking. You shouldn't speak to people if you believe that. First of all, when we maintain rabbits in a rabbit hutch-based system or some form of uh, rabbit tractoring or something like that in our environments, we feed rabbits really, really well. They have a lot more fat than, let's say, a wild rabbit living in the wintertime on a mountain or the edges around the farm. Which is where this whole thing came from. People were starving to death, eating animals that were starving to death, getting no fat. And yes, you will die if you don't get any fat. The idea that if you eat too much rabbit, you will, you will all all of a sudden stop consuming fat from other sources is stupid. But we do need to think about fat with some of these livestock choices as to how we're going to get it. So you want your... Rabbit, to be delicious and have fat in it, cook it in chicken fat, cook it in lard, cook it with bacon, etc., right? And other lean cuts of meat, bring in fat from other good animal sources, or some of the few really good sources of fat that we can get from plant-based sources. I think avocado, uh, olive, and to a lesser degree coconut are all pretty safe fats to include in your diet. But rabbits, just straight production of meat. But there's something about rabbits that people never seem to realize. The real way to get maximum production in your life from rabbits is to breed specific rabbit either crosses or breed types and sell live rabbits to other people that want to raise rabbits. A rabbit is worth more as, as a breeding stock, a breeding trio, a breeding pair, uh, soon to be breeding you know, young, young bunnies than it will ever be worth as meat on the table. People will pay you more for a living rabbit than they will for a rabbit that you've killed and cleaned for them. That doesn't mean you're going to sell a million of them a year, but I I want you to always think about, if I'm concerned about being able to produce high-quality protein and fat on my homestead, I have two ways that can happen. I can make the thing that I want so I can raise a sheep, and I've got plenty of meat and fat now. Or a small pig, right? Small pig breed or something, and I have plenty of meat and fat. Or I can raise rabbits, I get meat, I get some fat, not a huge amount, but I can sell surplus rabbits and I can buy in the thing that I'm trying to produce. And to me, the calculus works out the same that way. And it's also the case, you know, I, I can grow rabbits in a small suburban backyard. I can't put a cow back there. I probably can't put a pig or a sheep back there either. So what you do what you can with what you have to get what you need. Next up, ducks. Uh, and I'm talking conventional ducks here. To me, if you want to do conventional ducks, the so mallard breed ducks, those are your rowans, your Welsh harlequins, your buffs, your 300 layers, etc., they are every bit as easy to, to take care of and provide husbandry for that chickens are. In some ways, they're easier. The one thing is they have to have that water every day, and you need to think about that, and I won't get deep into that today. But there is one thing about these ducks they're noisy. They're really noisy, and sometimes they go hours without being noisy, and then sometimes they just lose their shit. Sometimes they just have a duck party. So if you live anywhere where noise would be a problem, if you had ducks quacking in your backyard, it's going to cause complaints. Karen's going to call the law department, making you sad. You're not supposed to have them, and now everybody knows you have them. I would just say don't. I think ducks work much better on a larger property, so up to you know up around an acre or more where you either have a primary water source so they can use, like a good-sized pond that you don't have too many ducks, we're not going to skank it up, or you can do what I do with, with you know having... Uh, I use the concrete mixing trays, kiddie pools, etc. They have to be filled and moved and, and dumped every day. And if you leave them in the same place, they will make duck creed out of the mud that they compact everything with. It has to move. They can be integrated in your systems. I love them. I'm not trying to talk you out of them. I'm just saying this is... This is what you're dealing with with ducks. You're going to deal with muddy holes, muddy creation, need water, poop in water, make noise. But they're fantastic. And the quality of a duck egg versus a chicken egg to me is night and day. And I love fresh chicken's eggs. But a duck egg is so much richer. To me, it tastes better. The yolks are amazing. So it's a premium egg product. If you want to do meat from ducks, you've got coals. And most of your good egg breeds, like your Welsh Harlequins and stuff, they're just not very big bodied animals. So even when you cull you don't get much. So you're really get like your jumbo peckins and things like that if you're looking at raising for meat. Um, but I'm more of a like cull and that's that's kind of it. They're more of an egg producer for me, and they are a great they are a great ally on, on a on a reasonably sized small uh holding. Muscovy ducks are where I think you want to go if you're in more of the type of property that we're talking about today. And I think they might be, and I actually did one, is it, is it, is it the perfect homestead animal? They might be. They don't make any noise. They make a little <sighs> like hissing sound and they make like a little cheap, but it's 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 quiet. They don't quack. They're quackless. As long as you cut their wings, they won't fly over the fence and cause problems elsewhere. They are much softer on landscapes than chickens or conventional ducks. There are some things that they might decide they really like to eat, and they'll eat it pretty heavy, heavily. But mostly, they leave things like gar- mostly they leave things like gardens, etc. alone. They don't. They they really kind of like just hanging out. You definitely have to fence them off of a porch because they will poop all over your porch if you don't. But if you fence them out of what you don't want them in, you keep their wings clipped. And you're religious about when you get to the molt, and they start to grow back, you catch them before they fully grow back and clip their wings, before, then you won't have any problems with them. One drake and four hens will make more babies every year than you can deal with. They're delicious. Their eggs are the same as a regular duck's eggs. You could not tell them apart. People that tell me they can't, I think they're full of crap. I, I've... I've put people that said it I've put it on a plate in front of them they can't tell me which one's which right um they're they're just so great at at so many things and they do again they're a lot softer on landscapes than conventional ducks they don't poop as much in water you don't have to change their water quite as much I would say you probably need less water per bird even though you need to change it every day than you do with conventional ducks. They just, I don't know why, but they just don't. Now, I'll say that they mess water up less. One thing you need to know about them, shitting is one of their defense mechanisms. And I swear to God, they can make it worse, like a snake musking on you because it doesn't want to be touched. Like the females, especially like when they're nested in an area, and you're disturbing them, and they don't want to be disturbed when they go broody, they'll make a fart sound when they go, and it will gag a maggie. It's bad. Right? And their waste is gross. It's wet and watery. And that's why I'm reiterating, keep them out of places you don't want because they will go in garages, outbuildings, etc. So they need to be excluded from those areas. And then they're just a wonderful animal. They're very self-sufficient. Where I grew up in Florida, every apartment complex had Muscovy ducks in ponds. Like every public park had M- Muscovy ducks. and And they just took care of themselves. You know, people threw bread to them and stuff, but mostly they just looked after them themselves. So they'll do that for you in your yard. Um, and, and they're really chill. They're the kind of birds that, you know, eventually, like you kind of have to push them a little bit with your foot to get them out of the way. They, they don't cuddle in your lap like a cat or nothing, but uh, they, they, they like to hang out. One really thing you need to be careful of with them, though, their nails and in their, in their feet, their, their toenails. This is a bird that is not much different than the wild version of it that still lives in Central America. They roost in trees in the wild, and their claws are designed that when they sit, almost like a raptor, those 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 feet wrap when they squat, and they bite into the tree. So that's what they're designed to do. They are much sharper than the nails of a chicken or a conventional duck. And pound for pound, they are much stronger birds. A little bitty, like five-pound female Muscovy duck will shock you at how strong they are. You need to wear long sleeves, in my opinion, and not like a thin flannel shirt, like a jacket sleeves when you work with them. When I pick them up, I actually kind of grab them by their wings, right where the wings anchor to the body, and leave their claws below. And then you can control them. That's just for moving them. If you're going to have to cut their wings, obviously, you have to kind of get them more in a cradled position. And you really want long sleeves then. I, one day, was texting Nicole and Nick Ferguson. Nicole saw us Nick Ferguson, like, back and forth, both of them. And all of a sudden, I got this picture of an arm, and it was really clawed nastily up. And I thought it was Nick, and he should know better And so I, like, texted back, I'm like, ha, 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 I mock your pain. I didn't even realize until a day later, I had actually switched windows, and it was Nicole that got cut by the the scummy duck, and I felt bad about it, because I don't mind mocking Nick Ferguson's pain, but I didn't want to mock Nicole's pain. But it was a pretty nasty slice. Um, Please, if you're going to work with them, respect the damage they can do. By the way, rabbits, too. Rabbits can really claw you badly, like, Get some help if, you, if you've never worked with these animals before. Uh, geese, the thing I love about geese is their personality, first of all. People think they're dicks and all, and they can be, but especially the pilgrim geese, they're the most chill geese I've ever raised. I have never seen a pilgrim goose go after a person, ever. Uh, they kind of bully the other birds a little bit here and there, but they all work that out. They all have their pecking order. But my biggest reason that I'm a fan of geese is that they can go from a gosling to a meat animal at 11 to 12 weeks, and they can do that 100% on grass forage, if you have good grass forage. They are a grazer. They are a micro-cow, and that's what I like about them. The bad news is, so like, Muscovy ducks will give you about 150 to 180 eggs a year. They just do it in in like two big bursts, and you get a long piece of the year that they don't give you eggs. They'll stop giving you eggs in that molting season, and you won't see many eggs from a muscovy until like January to February. So that you're looking like August through December, no eggs. But you do get the rest of the year, and you can save them up. Geese, beautiful eggs. A goose egg is a wonderful food item. You're going to get 30 to 45 eggs per goose. You're going to get them in about 40 days, and then you're not going to see another egg until next year. So they're not a great egg production animal. Now, if you, have, if you have buyers and you're selling eggs, and you have, especially from the Asian community, we got $2 an egg for goose eggs. So, I mean, that's, that's going to feed that goose for the whole year if you sell you know, most of its eggs. Um, but hatching them and producing meat, that's what I see that's best. I think geese is a kind of a specialized thing, but I wanted to include it today. Next, I'm going to say fish. You guys know I do a lot with fish and backyard, aqua, backyard aquaculture. I'm, I've done whole shows on it, so I'm not going to go deep into it today. I just wanted to make sure I mentioned it because it's something that's often overlooked. And if you have a small landholding but not a micro landholding, you know, I'm talking three, four acres, the easiest thing you can do is hire a company or rent an excavator, put it in three or four small ponds, and stock it with catfish, and throw a deer feeder with a deflector on that pond and feed those fish, and you have food, period. Now, I do it much more of like an active, I have to run pumps, small ponds, four or 5,000 gallons, things like that, my Miyagi ponds and all. I would much prefer to do the first thing, and I think it's the number one thing that can be done if you can you know, get yourself onto a little bit more sizable homestead with good clay, and you can put in catfish ponds you're golden. You're golden. And you can, you can. I, I wouldn't only do catfish. And depending on your climate, there might be other fish you want to do. If you live in a northern climate, then yeah, go do trout, man. Absolutely. Wonderful food quality. Uh, if you have a big enough pond, you know, things like, like crappie uh, or even white bass, you can consider incredibly productive animals. Uh, fast growing. You know, you almost can't fish them out. Uh, I'm not big on bass. As a food fish, I have nothing against killing a bass and eating it. I think people get all weird about that. That's a tournament fish, right? It's a big sunfish. I just don't think that they're. I think there's other fish that I can catch more of faster that taste better. Just put it that way. But fish is a huge one. Now, the other two that I'm going to put here, these are iffy, right? And that is sheep and pigs, smaller breeds of pigs. Let's start with sheep. I think, like, you know, the St. Croix. Or the Dorpers or something like that. The hair sheep would be the way to go. I don't personally understand why anybody does wool sheep at this point. At some point, maybe if society keeps going into the the shitter and we have to regress, uh, wool might be a valuable commodity again. But the reality is right now it costs more to pull the wool off the sheep than you get selling the wool. Unless you're doing some kind of specific value add to that wool. But if it's just a straight production thing... It costs more than it's worth to get, the, and you have to do it. Hair sheep, take care of themselves. You don't have to worry about it. The beautiful thing with sheep is that you can use a combination of fodder, so your fodder trees and grass, and you can be 100% self-sufficient from a feed standpoint, so they're ideal. The other side of it is you need some land. So I, I think that when I say small land holding, you can take that a couple different ways. Uh, a lot of people would consider a five-acre uh, homestead a fairly small homestead because there's a lot of people out there 120, 500 acres and what have you. So if you're in that kind of range, you can definitely do a few sheep. And depending on where you are, your climate, your pasture quality, et cetera, uh, that may or may not work. It's something you have to figure out for yourself. And then the last one I wanted to include was pigs. And Pigs obviously can be very big animals. There's plenty of places where pigs would be considered not acceptable by the Department of Making You Sad and what have you. But there there are smaller breeds of pigs and they actually tend to make really delicious pork. They're just not Uber efficient, but they work. So your potbelly pigs, for instance, are considered pets and nobody would ever eat one. Oh my god, why would you do that? I've eaten potbelly pig. And I have to say it's some of the better pork that I've ever had. It's not as good as like American Guinea Hog. But it's pretty Gone good. Most of your smaller breed pigs are also, a lot of people think it's a problem that they're going to be really high in fat as far as the, the lard production. This is actually the opposite of a problem. Being able to produce incredibly rich, valuable fat. And, you know, you're talking about a pig that might weigh a 200-pound pig. Let's say, you know, you kind of grow one out to its extreme uh, end of, of maximum. You might get fifty pounds of lard off of a type of pig I'm talking about, off of a two hundred pound. You might get more. That's a lot of jars of lard. That's a lot of cooking fat. Uh, that's an incredibly delicious resource. And again, pigs can be fed largely from restaurant and cafeterias, school cafeteria, etc. Waste streams. We've had Billy Bond on to talk about that, so I wanted to include that. But I wanted to really drive home that there's so much, there's so many options out there. And that means that it probably can work for anybody, because I'm not going to do pigs or sheep on this property. I could probably maybe pull off sheep, but I'm going to have to feed hay. I am never going to have the pasture productivity on this property, and I will never have the ease of movement moving them around with something like step- in um, electronet or something, not electronet um, electric wire, right? Uh, tape, electro tape. Because of the rock. So it doesn't work for me. So I don't do that. I do ducks. I do Muscovy ducks. I do chickens. I do fish because they all work for me. I also have done other things that I don't do now because if my wife won't eat it, then it's not worth it to me. So I don't do quail anymore because my wife won't eat them. I think about bringing them back from time to time, but honestly, I don't want to do the work for just me and my grandson. We will eat them. Nobody else in the family will. So you have to pick the thing that works for you. But there's probably something that does work for you. And what usually happens is you, you talk about livestock and people are like, that's out for me. Well, they never even considered the fact that something like a, uh, I mean, like I said, worms are livestock, bees are livestock, black soldier flies are livestock. There's something that you can use on your property. There's some opportunity that you can capitalize on. But I have some rules about this. And there's, there's different kinds of rules. Some rules are like, so you don't hurt somebody else. Right. Like there's rules like don't steal uh, from from Johnny or Timmy because then Johnny or Timmy will be sad because you took from them. And that's wrong. That's the one kind of rule. And then there's rules that we have that are more about they're for you. Right. Look both ways before you cross the street is an example of a rule that's more for you than it is for the person that will run you over. Be a horrible thing for somebody to run somebody over, have to live with it. But let's be honest, the person that gets hit by the car is probably worse off than the person that drove the car. So that rule is for you. My rules are for you here. They're not because I think you're a horrible person if you get the wrong feeder for your your, your freaking ducks or whatever. These are rules to not hate yourself. Rule number one: one at a time. One species of wild li- or one species of livestock at a time. There are some that are so merged in their care requirements that you probably could do it. I still think you're better off not. So taking care of my geese, my ducks, and my chickens is all one thing for me. I don't do a thing for the geese, and then a thing for the chickens, and then a thing for the ducks. I feed them every day. I give them water every day. I put them away at night. I let them out in the morning. It's all pretty easy. There were still things that I had to learn... As I started keeping these animals, that it was much easier for the, the, the fact that we started with nothing but chickens, and we got that right. and then we got ducks, and then we got that right. And then it was the next year. So we got chickens our first year here, early in the year. Like we were barely here. We had infrastructure though, we'll get to that, for them. And then it was that later that summer,' it like we had it, like, so I'm not saying you got to wait a, you know one a year. I'm just like, get your system right. So we had the chickens, they were like 12, 16 weeks old, everything was going good, we knew what we were doing, then we added ducks. And then the next season, we added geese. And I I think everything went easier because of that. Now, again, there are animals that the husbandry is so identical, so if you had Muscovy ducks and ducks and you got both of those out of the gate, I wouldn't really fault you. Because it's, it's identical care. It's not similar. It's ident- It's the exact same care. And so I wouldn't fault you for doing that any more than if you got... You know, I'm going to get ducks and I get some khaki Campbells and some Rowans. They're ducks, right? So I would say Muscovies are ducks. They just don't quack. Otherwise, get one... And, and you don't have to be perfect, but get completely comfortable with what you're doing before you get another one. Number two, get rid of what doesn't work for you. Never feel obligated... To keep doing something that you're not happy with it because of the care requirements, you're not happy with it because of the production volume or quality. You just you, you figured out I don't really like eating rabbit or whatever it is. Like when something doesn't work for you, sell off your animals, eat them, whatever you got to do, but quit doing a thing if it doesn't work for you. Number three, infrastructure first, and then I have in my notes in all caps. I mean it, explanation point. This is the number one reason people end up hating their life. They go out in about March to Tractor Supply or Atwoods or some kind of store like that, and they hear, peep, 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 peep. And then they go and look, and there's all these baby chickens or ducks or whatever, and like, oh, they're so cute. They're so little. Well, we'll just get four of them. Right? We'll get four little chickens and take them home. Well, what about a chicken coop? Well, we have time. What about a brooder? Oh, we'll make do with a Tupperware bin, which, which will work. right? What about feeders? Oh, we'll just pick some up. Well, okay. Well, are you going to do coop and run? Are you going to do paddock shift? Are you going to do free range? Do you know what it means when you do free range? What that's going to mean for you? Do you know how to keep them off your porch? Like, You need to think about all of this, and I'm not talking about paralysis analysis here. But I am saying that you should have the place your birds are going to live set up and ready to go for them to live in, even though when you first bring them home, yes, they're going to be in a brooder. You should have feeders, waterers, if you're going to have any kind of fencing, whatever it is, 100% of it, on hand, set up, ready to go, before you get your first bird. And uh, chickens, geese, ducks, goats, sheep, rabbits, I don't care what it is, you need to have everything ready before you bring that animal onto your property. Because time will condense so fast. So fast. Because you bring a little chicken home it's a day or two old, you put them in a Tupperware thing. right? If you don't have cats or dogs or whatever, they're going to go in there and bother them. You don't even need to put anything on the roof. Right? They ain't going to get out. Can't jump that high. Can't fly. Three weeks they're flying all over the house if you haven't moved them outside yet that's how fast it goes yeah if you're raising chickens and you're raising them for meat and you're not raising a dedicated meat bird you're probably looking at 16 18 weeks for that bird to be ready to harvest but you're looking at six to seven weeks before you pretty much have you know an adolescent mostly grown chicken running around and those six weeks go boom man they go fast Ducks grow even faster into, you know, a fully feathered little critter being waterfowl. They kind of need to. So always get the infrastructure in place first, and yes, I mean it. Develop a system of management so simple you can teach it to a 10-year-old because you might have to. And if you can teach it to a 10-year-old and a 10-year-old can reliably do it, your neighbor who's 30-something will be able to do it too because one of the things you're going to learn when you become a, 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 a someone who tends livestock is that you keep them but they also keep you this is why things like fish and bees and worms and all in some ways are preferable for people that want to travel a lot or they're busy because you don't have to you don't have to necessarily do something with them every day i personally think if you're a beekeeper you should probably be checking your hives once a month during the majority of the year. Now, when they're completely, like, dormant in the winter, you probably don't need to be doing that. You probably shouldn't be doing that during certain periods of time. But otherwise, you need to be checking them. But that's once a month. And I know plenty of people that do it, like, every other month, and, and, and they have they have great bee colonies. They have great bee colonies. A worm bin, you know, what happens is, if uh, you don't feed them as much, their population goes down. You feed them more, their population goes up. So you go away for a weekend or a five-day little jaunt, you have to worry about your worm farm, you know. But if you have chickens, somebody's got to let them out. Somebody's got to feed them. You can automate a lot of it, but in the end, somebody has to take care of them. So what you need is a system. In and you need to write it down, in my opinion. You know, let birds out by no later than. Pick up eggs. Put eggs. You know, where would you have somebody do it if you weren't doing it? Bowl on the counter because they can sit there for a few days before you you know refrigerate them. You know, how much to feed, where to feed them, where to store the feed, where the feed is stored. Have this system in place. We keep the feed here. There's X many bags of feed on, on hand at any given time. When the feed level goes below X number, then replace with Y number of new bags. Make sure that you're putting the, you know, the, the feed, the, the new feed on the top so that you're drawing from it. For, or your, or the old. I'm sorry, the old feed on top of the stack so you're using the oldest feed first, Right? You you may really find out that you need to you know get some uh, metal garbage bags uh, garbage cans or at least the big tough ones that are made out of the heavy uh, rubber and keep your feet in there or you might have problems with mice and rats raiding your feed. We had that till we got the cats, and at this point we don't have any real rodent problems anymore. And the cats live in the garage with the feed where the rats would come to get the feed and the cats eat anything that goes in there. But you you may not have the same balance so you need a you need the infrastructure first and then you need the system of how the infrastructure is used to care for the animal completely nailed and documented so you could hand somebody a spiral notebook here's how to take care of my chickens and they may not do it as good as you but you'll come home your birds are alive right when do you add new uh, litter to your coop what do you use for litter where do you get it like have this system down cold And make sure that you can, like I said, teach it to a 10-year-old, because otherwise you're going to find that you can no longer go on vacation. You can no longer slip away for a weekend. And this is why, even though I'm calling this a pillar of modern homesteading, it's not for everyone. Some people maybe are going to do more of the stool, the three-legged stool rather than the four-pillared house, right? Um, And then last, have realistic goals, I have people email me and they say, you know what, I want to do Jack, I want to have enough ducks like you did at one time, and I want to, like, I want to make a full-time living selling duck eggs. Yeah, you're not going to do that. You're not, unless you're in the perfect market and you corner the restaurant market and you expand duck eggs into places they've never been before, you're probably not going to grow enough duck eggs to make a living in the United States of America. That's not a real realistic goal. Now, if you have other product to go with it, you may be able to very well make a living as a small farmer. That's not what we're really talking about today, right? But realistic goals. I've also people like I want to grow a hundred chickens a year. How much land do you have? Is that reasonable? Does it even make sense? Is the labor worth the input of labor versus what you're gonna get back out of it? You know, if you can involve extended family and they take part in processing and then everybody gets some birds and they load share on the feed costs, this starts to make a lot of sense, right? I think if, if you can get to a point where, you know, we want to produce a couple dozen eggs a week in the busy season and we want to make sure that we, whatever eggs we don't use are somehow preserved for the low season, that's a reasonable goal. And then you'll find your family eating some of the most nutritious food ever, and your goal was reasonable. So since your goal was reasonable, you were able to engineer the result you wanted. If you're growing rabbits, you know, how many rabbits do you want to grow a year? You know, start out with a simple goal. I want to be able to put four rabbits into the meals for my family every month. That's very reasonable. What's not reasonable is I want, to, I want to produce so many rabbits that we eat rabbit every day. First of all, you're going to get tired of it. You won't get rabbit starvation, but you will get tired of it. And, and it's probably not a realistic goal. So set realistic goals. Develop the system of management so somebody can teach it to a 10-year-old. Infrastructure first. Get rid of what does it. If something is making you miserable, get rid of it. If something is costing more than it's producing, get rid of it. Tweak it and fix it or get rid of it. And if you've tweaked it three or four times and it's still a money sink or a time sink, you don't need it in your life. None of these are required. These are just the way people that I grew up around provided for themselves. And like I said, not everybody did everything. So if we had enough people with small livestock in a community, not everybody has to do it. And again, think creatively. How can I have a product that produces revenue that buys beyond what I can produce for myself? Anyway, again, we are going to continue with this series. And so the next time that we come back together and talk about this, we're going to talk about perennial production. And to me, this is, this is the layup. Perennial production is the layup. Perennial production is... We go in and we plant things that are productive that come back every year, and we take care of them the way we take care of any landscaping. And, and that way it's always there. And I'm a, an inside perennial production, I'm going to talk about, when we come back and do that, some of the things that are technically annuals, but they become perennial in nature. Uh, for instance, Jerusalem artichoke would be a product like that. Jer- Jerusalem artichoke, you know, as long as you harvest some every year, you'll always have them. The way you, you stop having Jerusalem artichokes is do nothing for long enough, and they will literally grow themselves to death. They'll get too tight, too packed together, and they'll stop producing. Uh, there's other ways to get rid of them. We'll cover that uh, if they spread to places you don't want them when we, when we get into that. But perennial production, trees, bushes, vines primarily. And then local hunter-gatherer knowledge. I am really looking forward to doing that episode with you eventually because... It is something that we have largely forgotten in America today, that there are so many local natural resources and so many other people that are part of this homestead community. And if we have the capacity to trade with other members of the community and we have the capacity to harvest from the wild, if you want to call it that. Sometimes wild is more like public easements on highways. There are some places around here, for instance, where you know, before the government started planting completely non-productive things, they used to plant things along highways, especially state byways and stuff like that, like pecan trees. And there's times of the year around here when the pecans are really dropping that you'll drive and you'll see 50 cars pulled over and people just picking pecans, right, absolutely for free. Well, that's a resource. You know, maybe you can't grow pecans, but maybe you can find something like that in your area. Blackberries, uh, in, in most of the country, you know, in the in the... And the parts where it rains anyway, man. There's more blackberry than you know what to do with if you know where to find it. Small park ponds and stuff with fish in them. Again, There's there's so much opportunity here. And then trading with your neighbors. And that will complete this series. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, you know you can always help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the Outdoor Edge 3.5-inch Razor Light EDC Knife. Guys, if you don't own one of these, I'm just going to say you're missing out. What this knife is, is it allows you to actually swap the blade out of it with a disposable blade. And it's an incredibly sharp uh, blade. I don't remember the exact steel type, but it's, a, it's not a very expensive steel. But it's the same steel that, that in general, uh, medical devices like scalpels are made out of. Because it, it does get so sharp so easily. And what I do with mine is, as it begins to dull, I use a sharpening steel on it. And I'll do that somewhere around 10 to 12 times for an individual blade. And then because it's a not very expensive steel, it will start to... You could tell it's, it's kind of had its best days behind it. And I'll pop that blade out, dispose of it properly. I have a video that tells you how to do that in the write-up and uh, cuz you don't want somebody getting cut through the garbage or whatever just pop a new blade in but I'll tell you when it really shines it shines when like you're you're hunting and you bring a deer back to camp and you're going to skin that deer and that blade's really just not cutting anymore and you're tired and you just want to have one more beer maybe throw throw the heart on the grill and and just be done you just swap a new blade in there and it's scalpel sharp I recommended the Gerber EAB knives, which use a standard uh, razor knife, razor blade, for years. And when I got this knife, I retired my recommendation for that and said, hey, let's, let's stick to this. Let's stick to doing this with, uh, with, with this because it's a much more practical knife because it, it, it's, it holds like a knife. It works like a knife. It has a standard knife blade shape. And again, uh, it's made by a company called Outdoor Edge. I love everything these guys make, and you can find all about it in the write-up on the blog today at the survivalpodcast.com the best way to stay in touch with everything folks is what get on the daily mail just go to the survivalpodcast.com click on daily mail and then fill out the form your name and your address and once a day you'll get an email from me it'll say here's what's new today that's it it's it'll be 3 to 5 items and links if you're not interested in that day just delete it but that way you won't miss stuff like this so always Always help us out when you're going to shop online by starting at tspaz.com and remember my recommendations there. I own it. I spent my money on it. I would do it again, or I wouldn't recommend it. But even if you buy something that's not listed there, as long as you start though, you help support us. Last, consider becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. Why wouldn't you do that? That would be that's how cool be an MSB member. It is. You get a bunch of really great discounts, and right now because it's Christmas time, you can get. $35 a year instead of $50 a year as an MSB member. Discount code is christmas and that runs through this week. So Sunday night, midnight, it will go away. And I don't care if your dog ate your discount code or whatever excuse you make, when the sale's over, the sale's over, so get it while you can. 35 bucks a year for MSB is a steal. There's many discounts that you can get as an MSB member. That one discount alone will pay for your membership easily. You want to get a Start9 Embassy server, for instance, that is a no brainer. Uh, some of the CBD products, I got a new CBD vendor I'm going to be bringing on that I'm really impressed with soon. Um, I'm actually going to be bringing on a lot of new vendors in January, and it's why I'm doing the sale in December so I have the time dedicated to bring in these new partners uh, next year instead of running a sale. Anyway, with that, hope you enjoyed it today and hope you enjoy the exit music on the way out. And we are back to mostly normal. And I will catch you guys tomorrow with another episode of the show. you down. Are they gonna bail you out? for just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. And you never have to pay.